Hello, and a very warm welcome to the fifth episode of Tales of a Starry Night, a stories and science podcast on the wonders of the night sky. The winter solstice, December the 21st, is upon us, the shortest day of the year, from which once more the days begin to lengthen. The wheel of the seasons turns deep into winter, yet the return of the light brings the promise of a new spring to come. If you pay a cautious attention to the sun, and unless you sit on the equator, you will notice that the location of its daily arc across the sky shifts with the time of the year. The reason for this, and for the existence of seasons, is the tilt of the Earth's daily rotation axis with respect to its yearly orbit around the sun. On one side of its orbit, the Earth points its northern hemisphere towards the sun. As a result, light shines more directly there, bringing warmth and summer. The sun rises in the northeast, sets in the northwest, and reaches its highest points above the southern horizon. At high enough latitudes, on either side of the summer solstice, usually on June the 21st, the sun no longer sets and appears in the north at night, low on the horizon. Then, as the northern hemisphere moves through summer, the sun's path there shortens. Its rising and setting points drift southwards. It no longer reaches so high above the horizon at noon. At the autumn equinox, around September the 22nd, it rises due east and sets due west, while day and night match in length. The earth now points its south pole towards the sun, and spring begins there as autumn begins in the northern hemisphere. There in the north, the days continue to shorten until the time of the winter solstice, when the sun reaches its southernmost rising and setting places and lies lowest on the horizon. At high enough latitudes, this is the Arctic night. Then, as the Earth pursues its yearly route around the sun, the days lengthen once more and the new seasonal cycle begins. The story I will share now a Slavic fairy tale happens in January, in the heart of a cold and snowy winter. Once upon a time, there was a young girl named Marukla, who lived in a small cottage at the edge of a forest by the foot of the Ural Mountains. The cottage had been her father's, but he had died early, and Marukla lived there with her vicious stepmother, and her nasty daughter. Needless to say, she was hated by both. They used her goodwill as an excuse to give her the hardest tasks. Washing the clothes, cleaning the house, fetching wood and water, weaving and sewing and repairing the clothes, looking after the cow, bringing her hay, taking her milk. In exchange, she would receive little food and so many insults. Yet despite all this, she was growing into a beautiful and gentle young woman. This triggered her stepsister's jealousy even more, and in contrast, she was becoming uglier and uglier. But both girls were growing, becoming of marrying age, and Marukla was becoming too much of a competition for her stepsister, so that she and her mother would have been happy to see her gone. Perhaps there was a way. It was the depth of winter then, 
the middle of January, and the stepsister asked Marukla to go and find her some bluebells. But, objected Marukla, the ground is covered in snow. Who has ever heard of bluebells coming out at this time? The girl insisted, and so did her mother. They struck the unfortunate Marukla until she was out of the house and they slammed the door behind her. It was so cold outside. Marukla felt sure she would freeze to death. She didn't know what to do. But her body began to walk into the woods. She had to move to keep warm. Soon, the night fell, clear and frosty. Marukla could no longer feel her fingers and toes. And as she looked up to get her bearings, she saw a light, a flickering light on the mountain top. Perhaps this was a fire. As she approached, she saw that it was a fire indeed, and in a circle around it sat twelve men. Marukla noticed that they were not all the same age. Three of them had white hair and deep furrows marking their faces. Three of them had graying beards. Three of them were full of youth still and extremely good-looking. The last three were the youngest of all, just out of boyhood. Marukla stepped forward shyly and asked for permission to warm herself a moment by the fire. They all stared at her, so unexpected was her arrival. Of course, please join us, said the eldest eventually. My name is January. What brought you here on such a cold night, he asked. Thank you, said Marukla. She was so grateful for the warmth and for the company. I am looking for bluebells. Bluebells? At this time of the year? I know this sounds mad, said the girl, but my stepsister would like so. She and her mother threw me out of the house, and they will not let me back in until I return with flowers. Perhaps we can help you, said the old man. He stood up and went over towards one of the other men. March was his name, and he gave him his wand. March stood up to take January's place, and as he did so, he waved the wand over the fire. The flame suddenly grew higher, and around the circle of men, the snow began to melt. Birds and young grass sprouted. Soon there were bluebells. Gather some, quick, said March. By the time Marukla had enough for her bouquet, the snow was again covering the ground. She thanked the men and ran back to the cottage. The stepsister was astounded and most ungrateful. Where did you find them? She wanted to know. In the mountains, Marukla simply replied. And the following day, the stepsister asked for strawberries. Strawberries, objected Marukla. This is really not the season for them. Well, you found bluebells, didn't you? The stepsister replied. And once more, Marukla was shoved out of the house with the door slammed and locked behind her. She had no other choice but to head back up the mountain and ask the twelve men for help. Strawberries! Was January's astonished 
reaction. Yet once more he agreed to help. He stood up and went over to June, giving him his wand. June stood up to take January's place, and as he did so, he waved the wand over the fire. The flames suddenly grew higher around the circle of men. The snow began to melt. The icy weather was traded for summer warmth. Nearby trees grew leaves. Birds sang along the mountain slopes, and strawberries ripened over the forest floor. Marukla gathered some quickly and managed to get an apron full before winter took hold of the world again. She thanked the men and ran back to the cottage. The strawberries were extremely sweet and tasty, but the stepsister, angered by Maruskla's success, ate them in such a frenzy that she probably didn't notice. The following day, she asked for apples. Marukla knew by then that there was no need to argue, and her only chance lay in the goodwill of the twelve men. Apples! January cried out. This is indecent! Yet once more, he agreed to help. He yielded his wand and his place to September, one of the oldest members of the group, and September conjured up the highest flames yet. The snow retreated to reveal mountainside trees in autumnal colours. Fern still green and purple heather led the way to a single apple tree covered in ripe red apples. Marukla shook it gently to retrieve one apple, and September let her shake the tree once more for another one. Then winter closed in again. Marukla thanked the men and ran back to the cottage. The women there were astounded, but all Marukla would answer was in the mountain. Then they complained that two apples weren't enough, and probably Marukla had eaten the rest. So the stepsister decided to go out and see for herself. She walked through the forest until she could see the mountain tops and noticed the fire, so she went to warm herself without asking. What brings you here on such a cold night? January asked. Mind your own business, old man, she replied rudely, before heading deeper into the forest, searching for the apple tree. January frowned and let his wand touch the ground. The fire suddenly went low. Clouds gathered and snow began to fall. The wind rose and a blizzard settled. The stepsister fought in vain through the storm, and so did her mother, who had gone to look for her. Marukla inherited her father's cottage, the field and the cow, and in time she married an honest man. Sometimes, on a clear winter night, she walks towards the mountains to catch a glimpse of the twelve men's fire. Yet she knows not to disturb them, and teaches her children to appreciate and respect each season. It might be possible nowadays to get strawberries for Christmas, but at what cost? Perhaps we need to reacquaint ourselves with the seasons, with how they flow where we live. Cycle is an important word here, and with impending climate change, 
we might ask, what if that cycle changed or was interrupted? This echoes ancient fears that the sun's arc across the sky might continue to shrink and the sun disappear for good. In a fashion, this is explored in the Norse myth of the death of Baldur. Odin, the Old Father, the greatest of the gods of Asgard, was first to notice the shadow on his son's Baldur's face, the unusual sadness tainting his smile. Baldur was the god's favourite. He was as beautiful and pure as sunlight. A smile always beamed on his cheerful face, and his laughter would resonate and spread happiness around Asgard. He was the god of summer, light and heat. What ails you, my son? Odin asked. And Balder confessed that he was having nightmares, bad dreams which seemed to announce his doom. Upon hearing this, Odin was greatly alarmed, and his wife, Frigg, Balder's mother, was determined to try everything to save her beloved son. She crossed Bifrost, the Rainbow Bridge, and travelled through the Nine Worlds, asking all to swear they would not hurt Balder. So loved was he, the bringer of light and heat and joy that all agreed. Fire and water, iron and all kinds of metals, stones, winds and illnesses, all the birds in the sky, all the fish in the sea, all the animals on land, all the inhabitants of the land, be they human, giants, dwarves or elven, all the plants and trees that live and grow on the land, all gave their word to Frigg. And so she was reassured and returned to Asgard, the fortress of the gods, full of hope, for nothing in the world could now harm Balder. The gods rejoiced and prepared a great feast in celebration. They ate, they drank, they made merry, so much so that someone suggested the game. Since nothing could hurt Balder, they could throw anything at him, and he remained unhurt. So Balder placed himself at the end of the great hall and laughed as all kinds of projectiles bounced off him without causing harm. Spoons, thrown shyly at first, then all kinds of utensils and weapons, swords, spears, even Mjolnir, Thor's hammer, who left and returned to the great god's hand without hurting Balder. This became the god's favourite game and all took part. Well, nearly all. For Balder had a twin brother named Hodur, who was as dark as he was light. Hodur ruled over winter, cold and darkness. He heard the laughter, but could not take part for he was blind. He sat in a corner of the great hall, dark and melancholic. His grey frosty coat touched the ground and the legs of his stool were covered in ice. And there was another god who didn't partake. You might have guessed it was Loki. Loki who was as jealous as he was cunning and determined to prove that Balder wasn't invisible. In the disguise of an old woman, he came up to Frigg and pretended to be alarmed. Balder is in great danger, Loki said, 
Everyone is fighting him. Do not worry, old woman, Frigg replied. Baldur is safe, because in all the nine worlds, everyone has sworn not to hurt him. Truly, everyone, asked Loki as the old woman. Yes, all, Frigg replied, annoyed now. All except for Mistletoe, who looked too young and frail to swear an oath. Loki left. He had his information. He was smiling to himself. Now he knew how to hurt Balder. He found some mistletoe and made a fine arrow of it. Then he sat next to Hodur in the great hall. Are you not playing, Hodur? he asked. Why, Loki, you know well that I am blind, Hodur replied. Yet, would you like to take part? Loki insisted. Of course I would, said Hodur. Let me help you then, Loki said. And he gave Hodur the mistletoe arrow and guided his arm. Hodur was strong and Loki aimed true. The arrow lodged itself deep into Balder's heart and instantly he dropped dead. The gods were stunned. They looked at Balder and each other in disbelief. Then they cried out their grief. Balder was no more, and darkness came over the earth. The inhabitants of the nine worlds gathered in the semi-darkness to form the funeral procession. Balder's body was placed on his boat, Ringhorn, and Nana, his wife, threw herself on his body and died of grief. No god had the strength to send the boat afloat, so they called for a giantess who came astride a wolf and pushed the boat to the sea. Then the boat was set alight, and Odin threw his golden bracelet to Dropnir into the funeral pyre. Then Frigg spoke. Who amongst the gods, who will have the courage to reach hell in the underworld and plead for Baldur's return? Who will have the courage? Hermod, Baldur's brother, and the swiftest of the gods accepted the mission. He was given Sleipnir, Odin's eight-legged steed, and departed immediately. This was the most gruesome journey he'd ever made. But eventually, he reached the palace of Hel, the goddess of the underworld, and pleaded with her for Baldur's return. The whole world is mourning, he said. Plants no longer grow. There is no warmth, no light, no longer any joy in the hearts of God and men. She listened to his eloquent speech and was touched. She said, If you speak true, if all things animate and inanimate truly weep for Balder, then I will release him. But should a single thing or a single person not mourn, then Balder will stay with me forever. Balder returned Odin's bracelet Glopnir as a proof that Hermod had met him. And Hermod returned to Asgard, travelling again for nine days and nights without any rest. Upon hearing his report, 
the gods sent messengers to the nine worlds, and all cried, gods, men, animals, trees, stones, mistletoe so saddened by the role it had to play. All cried, for they genuinely loved Baldur. Yet in a cave, high up a mountain, was an ill-tempered giantess who refused to cry. Let hell keep what she has, she told the messengers. She was none else than Loki in disguise, and because of him, hell kept her prey. Aching with pain, the gods understood who was responsible. Loki's punishment was dreadful and precipitated the end of the gods. Three dark, relentless winters followed on each other, for summer could no longer break through. Snow fell in all directions, and the world became an icy field, swept by a constant blizzard. Then a terrible war broke amongst men. Brothers fought against brothers, and families were destroyed. The giants launched an attack against the gods, and many disappeared as the world ended. Yet the prophetess of old had seen beyond this end. She was said, Now do I see the earth anew, rise all green from the waves again. The cataracts fall, and the eagle flies, and fish he catches beneath the cliffs. Then field unsold bear ripened fruits. All ills grow better, and Balder returns. Yet every year, the disappearing sun does indeed reverse its course, appearing stronger and stronger every day as the seasons progress towards spring. The winter solstice is a time of celebration, celebrating the returning light that heralds the return of life and warmth. Dwellings are decorated with lights and with evergreens, a symbol of the continuity and the continuation of life, a life ready to blossom again despite perhaps a cover of snow. What matters is that the cycle continues. And the cycles are different in different parts of the world. Not all winters bring snow, not all summers bring a welcome warmth. At lower latitudes, the harsh summer sun can bring droughts and hunger, and winter, the long-awaited fertilizing rains. I will now share with you the story of the conflict between Baal and Mot, Baal the god of winter and Mot the god of the underworld, the land of the dead. On Baal's survival depends that of humankind. The text of this myth, which I have adapted, was found on clay tablets dating back to the 1300s BC at the site of the ancient city of Ugarit on the Syrian coast. Baal, the god of rain, wind and winter. Baal, who rules the snow and common thunder. Baal was filled with power and full of pride. Recently, he had triumphed over Yam, the Leviathan, the sea monster, who ruled over seas and rivers and caused their storms and floods. Baal had restored order amidst the watery chaos. Then with the help of his sister, the fierce and feisty Anat, he was granted the right to build a palace by El, the most ancient of the gods. 
So Baal had settled on the heights of Zephon, an ice-capped summit, from where he could command rain and wind, lightning and thunder. Baal fed strong, the strongest of the gods. And when the palace was finished, he stood with satisfaction, surveying the land from up high, his golden tiara shining on his head, golden rings around his muscular arms, thunderbolt in hand. Then he decided he would hold a feast to show off his power. He had copious amounts of bread and wine brought to the palace, enough to dine for a year, and he sent messengers to invite the gods and their retinue. His sister Anat, El, the most ancient of the gods, with his wife Asirat and their son Athar, and also, and even, Mot. Mot was the god of death, the god of the underworld, a god who could also control Shapash, the sun goddess, who visited him every night. So Baal sent his two divine messengers, Gnup and Ugar, to Mot, telling them, Turn your faces to the rocks of the west, to the two hills that limit the earth. There, lift up a rock on your two hands and go down into the earth, into the underworld. Then turn towards Mot's muddy abode, prostrate yourselves at his feet and do him honour. Yet do not come too near, lest he makes you like lambs in his mouth. Then tell him, Here is the message of mightiest Baal. I who command thunder and lightning, I who am able to veil the face of the sun and bring down the rains that the people rejoice in. I have built a palace of gold and silver on the heights of Zephon, and I invite you, divine Mot, you and your retinue, to join me in a feast of bread and wine. Upon hearing those words, the divine messengers Gnup and Ugar turned their faces to the rocks of the west. They departed and stayed not. Swiftly, they reached the two hills that limit the earth and went down into the underworld, a muddy, filthy, sombre place. They could just about see their way forward. Their feet sank deep into the earth, stuck to the ground, gathering more mud with every step. And finally, they reached Mott's muddy abode. They prostrated themselves at his feet and repeated word for word what Baal had said. Mott sneered, then laughed wholeheartedly. Divine messengers, here is my reply. My appetite is that of a lion in the desert. As a dolphin longs for the sea, as a wild oxen longs for a pool, as a herd of hinds long for a spring, my desire is to consume flesh and blood. And you would invite me to a feast of bread and wine. Don't you know, Baal, that I can destroy you the way you destroyed the Leviathan? The heavens shall burn up, and a suffocating heat shall fill the air. For the flesh I now desire is none other's but yours, Baal. I demand that you come to me and feast at my table. For if you do not, I will send my servants to drag you here through the mud and the filth. Upon hearing those words, the divine messengers Knup and Ugar turned their faces to the heights of Zephon. 
they departed and stayed not. They trudged through the dark mud of the underworld, then ran at speed in the open air until they reached the palace of Baal. They repeated word for word what Mot had said. Baal trembled. He knew Mot was a formidable adversary. He knew it had been foolish to provoke him. He knew the power of the god who can scorch the earth and shrivel its fruits. He had no wish to visit Mot in the underworld. Instead, he turned to the mountain of El at the source of the two rivers to plead his case in front of the most ancient of the gods. But the servants of Mot were already following his tracks. Baal had to hide and flee, and in his need, he received help from the sun goddess Shapash. She told him, Take your thunderbolt, your clouds, your winds, and their daughters, mist and rain. Turn your face to the rocks of the west, to the two hills that limit the earth, the entrance of my nightly grave. There, lift up a rock on your two hands, and go down into the earth, into the underworld. Stay there, a weak shadow amongst shadows, and no one, not even Mott, will be able to find you. Following her advice, the mighty Baal departed and stayed not. As he was approaching the limit of the earth, the edge of the fertile lands, the shore of the realm of the dead, he saw a cow in the field. He loved her there and then, and she gave birth to a son. Baal dressed the child in his robes and left him as an offering to Mot. Then he hid in the dust and mud, a shadow at the edge of the underworld. The days went by. The sun was shining brighter and brighter, hotter and hotter. The soil was drying fast, streams became tenuous, and Baal was nowhere to be seen. So his sister, Anat, went in search of him. She, she, she searched every rock to the heart of the earth, every hill to the heart of the fields, until she approached the limits of the earth, the edge of the fertile lands, the shore of the realm of the dead. There, she found what she thought was Baal's body. So she covered herself in dust, she scraped her skin with a sharp stone, she hid her breast with great blows and cried all the tears in her body. Then with the help of Shapash, who had come down to her, she carried the body to the heights of Zephon. There she buried him as befit his rank. Then she turned to the mountain of hell at the source of the two rivers to bring the terrible news to the most ancient of gods. When she arrived, she prostrated herself at El's feet and did him honour. Then she said, Baal is dead. Upon hearing this, El covered himself in dust. He scraped his skin with a sharp stone. He hit his breast with great blows and cried all the tears in his body. Then he called his wife, Athirat, and asked, who amongst your sons can take a Baal's place? Atar, she replied, for he is wise and intelligent. So Atar turned his face to the height of Zephon. He departed and stayed not. He entered the palace of mightiest Baal and sat himself on his throne. 
but his feet dangled in the air. He was too short to reach the ground. He said, I cannot take Baal's place. None other than he can handle storm and thunder. None other than he can stop this drought. For upon the earth, the sun shone relentlessly. The heat was dreadful, such that not a single blade of grass could grow. The soil was hard, cracked and dusty. And in the underworld, Mott was rejoicing, feasting on the bodies of those who had died of thirst or hunger. So once more, Anat went in search of her brother, like a heifer yearning for her calf, like a ewe yearning for her lamb, so that eventually she reached Mott's muddy abode. She said to him, O oh, divine Mott, it is time for you to release my brother. Mott replied, What is it that you desire of me, dear Anat? I have also searched Baal for a long time. I searched every rock to the heart of the earth, every hill to the heart of the fields, until I approached the limit of the earth, the edge of the fertile lands, the shore of the realm of the dead. There I found him, and he was like a lamb in my mouth. Baal is dead, Anat, and every day the drought offers me fresh meat. And Shapash, the sun goddess, the luminary of the gods, did grow hot. The earth was crying its thirst, plants, animals, people were dying. So Anat lost patience, and she was fearless. She seized Mot, split him with her sword, winnowed him with a sieve, ground him with millstones, scattered him in a field, and the birds ate his flesh, and the sparrows his limbs. Thus did Mot perish. And a while later, El had a dream, a dream of abundance, a dream in which Baal returned, a dream of a land where heavens rained with oil and ravines ran with honey. El rejoiced, for he knew Baal was alive. So he went to see Shapash and said, O oh, Shapash, the furrows in the fields are cracked. They need the presence of Baal. Where is he? Where is Baal the mighty? To this she replied, O oh, divine El, prepare wine for a feast. Let the children wear wreaths, for I will seek mightiest Baal, and soon he shall return. And so Shapash turned her face to the rocks of the west. She departed and stayed not. She called Baal from the underworld, and he returned mighty and thundery, bringing rain and fertility back to the land. And the days passed. And the days turned into weeks, and the weeks into months, and months into years. But on the seventh year, Mot arose from the dust and went to find Baal on the heights of Zephon. He said, Because of you, Baal, I was split with a sword, winnowed with a sieve, ground with millstones, scattered in the fields, eaten by the birds. The gods looked at each other, eyes like burning coals. Mot was mighty, Baal was mighty, they fought like wild oxen. Mot was mighty, Baal was mighty, they beat like serpents. Mot was mighty, Baal was mighty, they tugged like greyhounds. Then Mot fell down, with Baal on top of him. Exhausted they both were. And so Shapash intervened. O oh, divine Mot, she said, how can you fight 
with mightiest bar. No, you cannot win, for El, the most ancient of the gods, has reinstated him upon his throne. Mott knew the truth of these words, so he turned his face to the rocks of the west, towards his own kingdom. He departed and stayed not. And since then, the winter rains ensured the fertility of the land, to the people's great joy. So here again balance is restored. Then perhaps you might want to ask, what are the seasons like where you live? Can you feel the rhythm? I grew up enjoying the four seasons of mid-European latitudes, but also had the privilege to experience the binary alternance between rainy season and dry season during the brief time I lived in the tropics. Back in Europe, the Romans had one of their most popular festivals at the time of the winter solstice, the Saturnalia, which celebrated the god Saturn with much feasting, role reversals, gift-giving, and has influenced the development of our own Christmas celebrations. Roman iconography represents Saturn with a size, and he was associated with agriculture. Later, he was assimilated to the Greek god of time, Cronos. As Roman mythology mirrored the Greek, the story of Zeus displacing his father Cronos became that of Jupiter displacing Saturn. In this brief retelling, there are more twists and turns I will not get into this time. I will use the Greek names. Cronos, the youngest of the Titans, wasn't quite settled on his throne. He had deposed his father Uranus with the help of his mother Gaia, yet his parents had predicted that he in turn would be deposed by his own son. So after he married his wife Rhea, he became restless and hypervigilant, and when she bore him a first child, he ate it. Then he ate a second child, and three more again. Rhea was desperate, and couldn't stand it any longer. So with the help of Gaia, she hid Zeus, her sixth born, on the island of Crete, and to Cronos she gave a stone dressed in a newborn's clothes. He swallowed what he believed to be his child, in a single mouthful, and didn't think more of it, until, until a fully grown Zeus came to free his siblings. Somehow, Cronos regurgitated them all, and together with Zeus, they fought their father and the Titans to gain control over the cosmos. At sunset, the planets Jupiter and Saturn are visible in the southwest. You might have noticed that over the past month, they have come closer and closer together. And now, Saturn is just up and slightly east of the brighter Jupiter. On December the 21st, the day of the solstice, Jupiter and Saturn will sit a mere 0.1 degree apart, so that they'll almost appear to merge together. Astronomers are calling this even the Great Conjunction of 2020. Although such conjunction conjunctions occur about every 20 years, the last time the two planets looked this close was nearly 800 years ago, and next time will be in 2080. The forecast here looks rather gloomy, but I'm still trusting that the night will be clear. What we might see could be similar to what prompted the Magi to set off for Bethlehem. 
The beginning of chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel reads, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. There has been much speculation as to what this Christmas star could have been. In Beyond the Blue Horizon, Edwin Krupp suggests that rather than an actual star, potential candidates could be planetary conjunctions. The great conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter in 7 BC could be too early in the light of other historical evidence, and another candidate could be the conjunction of Jupiter and Venus, the two brightest nighttime objects after the Moon, on the 17th of June in 2 BC. After hearing from the priests and teachers that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, the Magi went on their way. Matthew writes, And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Thus the first Christmas celebration began. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you liked it, please don't hesitate to share it. If you have any comments, please don't hesitate to get in touch. And until next time, goodbye.